Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, in this, to, to kick this one off, I want everyone to think back on their most recent argument. And I mean, like not like a little argument, but one something where it actually got a little heated, even, even if it was just a... a Heat on one side only. Yeah, and we're not talking like, hey, did you, you know, you got to leave the seat up, you know, kind of argument, right? Right. That you know, because that's sort of like a rote, usual argument between uh, couples, right? Yeah, we're and talking I'd... about something that there was a topic, and you felt passionate about it, and and you had uh, a story to tell about why you were passionate, and you were arguing with this story. And 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 I do have some serious questions about anyone who's still arguing uh, for. Um, keeping the seat up like that just seems. I mean, I, I'm just going to go I ahead agree. and say we that we could I, do an entire podcast on that, and I'm sure we could find some science and some stats. Well, in a, in a way, this podcast is a podcast about that because that's actually a great argument to keep in mind. Because I have met uh, men, I guess you can call them men, who uh, <laughs> these who, are the, the people who like to put the seat up, right? Who, or make an impassioned argument for why it's it's totally cool that they don't put the seat down. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll be like, "Oh, well, it just you know, it's fifty fifty percent of one, fifty percent of the other." Or uh, I I can't remember all the the arguments they make for uh, continuing doing this thing they do. But it actually kind of uh, kind of strikes at the core of what arguing is all about, which we're going to discuss in this podcast: the science of arguing. Mm-hmm. So first, let's back up. Let's imagine the sort of classical idea. Of arguing. Okay. Well, well, I think of it more in terms of debate, really. Debate. Yeah. So imagine, uh, uh, some old Greek men in their, uh, their, their robes. Uh, was it called a toga then? Or is it just kind of a robe? Uh, let's go with toga. Let's go with toga. Yeah. Just create a more, uh, instantly, uh, visible picture in right. the mind. Uh, old men in toga, like a little, uh, flabby chest kind of, uh, exposed there. Stand- oh, yeah. You're going to want a detail there. Standing in the middle of this forum and they're discussing the, uh, uh, you know, the philosophy of, well, not toilet seats, but, uh, but pretty much every <laughs> other aspect of life. One is taking this side of the argument, the other this side. Uh, you know, what is the, what is the meaning of, of existence? Why are we here? Uh, mm-hmm. how should we approach government? I mean, everything is, is on the table. You're, you're and- going ancient Greece here. We're at the assembly. Yes. Yeah. Maybe they're even talking about some of the architecture and they say, oh, but if we do this, people will think it's a vomitorium hundreds of years later and think <laughs> that we're so excessive. That we need a place to vomit our uh, transgressions. Right, but the, the the idea, the sort of classical idea here of, of debate and arguing is that is you, you get people that are passionate about the, about one side or another, get them together in a room, and mm-hmm. out of all this debate will emerge truth, will emerge uh, an idea of actually which direction we should go in. Yes, and many judicial systems are predicated on this model, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, bring the, the lawyers in. One side will present this side of the case. Another will present the other. And out of this, some sort of truth will emerge that the jury or the judge will see and the decision will be made. Right. There's a noble path to arguing right. at times. Um, but uh, as we have uh, discovered as of late, there is a dark side to debate. Yes. Which may or may not come uh, as a surprise to you. So let's talk about our old friend confirmation bias, which we've talked about quite a bit. Yes. Okay, this is this idea that we cherry-pick the information around us to support our own agenda or the idea we already have formed in our mind, right? And so that's why we make mistakes. That's why we make uh, errors in logic. And a lot of times we've thought about this as a flaw, but it turns out that this could actually be a feature of arguing. And, um, you know, there have been some people who say, 
why hasn't natural selection actually ferreted out this part of our cognition? Mm-hmm. Because if it keeps causing us to make mistakes, why is it still with us? Uh, we'd be much smarter about our choices if we ran them up against data that challenged them, and we don't, right? Right. And it, it also, it, uh, the other way of looking at this too is that it, instead of saying, oh, why can't we have why can't we have a news, uh, you know, corporation that actually uh, presents both sides equally? Uh, it, it, because that would kind of be out of keeping with uh, with with how our mind works. Yeah, right. yeah. It, it turns out that this again, this is a feature of reasoning. Um, cognitive social scientists Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber think that we've been looking at confirma- confirmation bias all wrong. They posit in their what they call their argumentative theory that because we humans are so good at reasoning. Uh, that confirmation bias is actually a feature of it and not a detraction from logic, mm-hmm. um, even though it gets us in trouble sometimes. And really the reason that we argue is not to get to a rational conclusion, but to win the argument. So basically the, the way I was thinking about this, and part of this is because I'm, I've been watching nature shows a lot uh, the last couple of days, is I think of those elephant walruses, you know, the ones with the males with the big flabby noses and the teeth and the scars. Uh, like slam into each other and fight on the beach to see who'll get to breed with this, uh, this harem of, uh, of beautiful, uh, elephant seals. Uh, like that is essentially what all arguing is and not two learned men in togas standing around, uh, philosophizing about the world. It's basically like, it's this headbutting, chest thumping together kind of a situation. Well, and some people would say, too, that um, besides being a bunch of uh, wrong-headed walruses, that it's also our ego. Oh, it, totally. Our, I mean, our egos are the, the walruses that are right. – sli- well, I mean, seals – that are slamming into each other here, you know? I feel like, again, think back to that last big argument you you personally had. Uh, and, and you'll probably find you'll probably find your ego as the, the key uh, instigator there. Like, uh, like, I'm just thinking back to the last argument I had, um, which uh, I think was with my editor. <laughs> but uh but there there came there comes a like if I was to look at a timeline of that of the um the conversation becoming an argument mm-hmm. there is a certain point where it it becomes less about significantly less about the topic that we are discussing and more about the the need to be right and the and the inability to let the other person be right and uh I feel like this is definitely this is definitely a part of 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 so many argumentative situations, mm-hmm. uh, what varies is our ability to to realize uh, what's uh, pulling the strings. Yeah? Well, uh, this is this is from um, Mercier in uh, uh, Edge.org conversation that he had with Edge.org. He says, if you take the point of view of the argumentative theory, having a confirmation bias makes complete sense. When you're trying to convince someone, you don't want to find arguments for the other side. Mm-hmm. You want to find arguments for your side, and that's what the confirmation bias helps you to do. Yeah. So that's that's what we're talking about here is, um, you know, that's serving your ego, right? You probably could poke holes in your own argument if you really wanted to find the truth, but you are building a case. Right. Yeah. There, there comes a, the, the point where you're it's it's not a, not about figuring out, well, what is actually the best solution to this problem we're discussing? But what can I do to support the fact that I am right and I am going to destroy you for thinking differently? Yeah. Yeah. It's it. I mean, the the what he says is that it is to devise and evaluate argument arguments intended to persuade. So yeah. destroy, persuade. Yes. Um, same thing. Right. Uh, well, at least in in terms of metaphorical uh, arguments. But really, I mean, what we're talking about here, too, is, and we've talked about this before, reality is as fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we're creating our own realities, and they are a fiction. 
They, yeah. you know, because they're particular to us. Uh, there's no absolute truth in each of our realities, right? Right. Like another, um, argument I can think of, because I tend not to argue with my friends, uh, for the most part. Um, well, well, I can think of a few friends that are particularly argumentative, but, um, but one of the last arguments I remember having with, with, with a group of friends, and this is one of those arguments where I was the only one that was really impassioned about it, mm-hmm. but, uh, it was over whether a particular movie was merely a social, uh, quirk or just sort of interesting in, in, in what it said about society or mm-hmm. whether it was actually, uh, either harmful to society or on some level telling about what is wrong with us. And, uh, and I was very impassioned about it and, and in, and in trying to make my case, I'm basically saying this, I'm telling a story about what reality is and how this thing I'm arguing about factors into that, uh, that, that fiction, that, that particular story, that mm-hmm. version of reality. Mm-hmm. And in their version of reality, it plays a slightly different role. And well, and this is the the problem, maybe why we can't uh, uh, many times reach some sort of common ground because right. we are furthering our own story, right? We are essentially living in different worlds. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and I I say that, and that's a very um, kind of cliche thing to say, but think of it as like literally a different world, a different universe, a different um, a, a different worldview, a different uh, bubble of reality. And these bubbles are bumping up against each other. Well, don't we see this play out all the time in American politics? Oh, yes, right? yeah. Because there's so much information out there. There's so much rhetoric. But, uh, you know, it's not, it seems at least most of the time that the, the point of a lot of the debates isn't to, to actually get to some sort of solution mm-hmm. or some sort of rational thought process, but to further whatever that agenda is. And, um, you know, I just think about it uh, just in our day-to-day interactions with with one another. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a family that loved to debate. My brother loves to debate. And I can look at the patterns in our conversation, and I can see the same sort of patterns going on in, you know, political conversations going on, where, you know, you take these strategies, like, you know, if the other person maybe has a more rational perspective, mm-hmm. you may start... Uh, looking at fringe details and throwing little Molotov cocktails there just to get the person feeling a little bit more unstable in his or her argument. Um, and so it's, it is a sport really. Yeah. Um, but you know, that being said, uh, there is actually an upside to arguing and we'll talk about that when we get back. All right. We're back arguing the upside. Um, so especially as we're, as we're discussing this uh, argumentative theory, it's easy to sort of say, oh, well, arguing is just kind of horrible then. It's just people bumping chests against each other. It's just egos lashing out each other at each other with gnawed teeth. And it's mm-hmm. uh, individuals just throwing around um, different versions of the world and never actually learning anything. Yeah, but according to Mercier and Sperber, group evaluations can actually suss out rational lines of thinking. And uh, maybe not in American politics, <laughs> uh, but but obviously we know dissent is good. I mean, this is, this well, is the basis of, of democracy, right? Well, I mean, I guess you could make the case, uh, is it is it really a group discussion if they're like two parties? You know, the two parties, it right. eventually breaks down to two enormous people 
arguing uh, each uh, one. Uh, well, and that's yeah. what people have a yeah as often cited as a problem of the American political system, right? right. That, that's not necessarily representative of of all its citizens. Um, but but you know, in theory, if you have a bunch of arguments before a group of people, they can be evaluated as a whole, and then this is when the flawed logic of of confirmation bias actually gets to run up against information that can challenge each argument until the truly rational one emerges victorious. This is the idea. And we have seen this in play. You know, you know, there's certainly think tanks are predicated mm-hmm. on this as well. And we've also discussed a, a group think and uh, an emergence and the idea right. that, you know, people guessing at the jelly beans. And as long as they don't have too many preconceived notions about what they're uh, they're, they're guessing about, you know, if, if if they haven't been told what they're going to believe, uh, the truth will often emerge That's right. from, from what the street, from what the, uh, the the average person is thinking. That's right. If they haven't been influenced by the person next to them. Right. Uh, but it's also good for you on a physical level. Um, you know, we, we can certainly be really irrational at times. And as a result, all of us have had that knockdown, drag out argument at one time or another that just makes you feel awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that most of the time we would avoid a conflict if we could. Uh, but it turns out that arguing is actually better for you than turning the other cheek in avoidance. And when I say arguing, I mean in a productive way. Um, So how do we know? Uh, From a study conducted by the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, there were 1,842 adults, ages uh, 33 to 84, and they were asked each day for eight days whether they had engaged in an argument or whether they had experienced a situation in which they could have argued but decided to let it pass without a fight. Uh, The subjects also gave saliva samples for four of those eight days. And researcher Kira Burdett found out that uh, 60%, uh, 62% of the participants sidestepped arguments, okay? Mm-hmm. So that sort of mirrors what we normally do anyway. And it was found that this group had elevated levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which we know can really mess up your body when it's elevated. And um, those who experienced tension and argued, and those who experienced tension and avoided arguments all felt some sense of unease, and we're talking about negative emotions, upset stomachs. But those who avoided arguments still felt the emotions and physical symptoms the next day. Hmm. So it had far-reaching effects for those people who avoided it. I uh, ran across an interesting study uh, myself from uh, University of Virginia, and this is one that was just recently published, um, and it makes the argument that um, an argumentative teenager is uh, is actually the an ideal <laughs> an ideal uh, person to have in your household um, because um, uh, though it may not seem like it at the time, right? Right. Uh, so if you were yourself a teenager, uh, and I know we have teen listeners out there, or if you were a parent of a teenager, uh, you may put yourself into this uh, scenario. The study argues that these uh, disputes uh, between a teen and the parent are actually a symbol of teen uh, developmental separation from the parents, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's a vital part of of growing up, and that it actually um, it actually leads to uh, lifelong benefits to to the child uh, that they as they grow up they're going to be if they argue with the parents a lot they're they're sort of testing those muscles they're using those muscles of independent thought mm-hmm. so if they are then uh, faced with say the the decision of whether to uh, engage in underage drinking mm-hmm. or any other kind of risky behavior, they're more likely to turn that kind of stuff down. They're going to be more resistant to peer pressure. I've also read, too, that's a sign of respect, that the child actually or the teenager wants to engage in debate with you because they're really interested in your thoughts. And it's mm-hmm. trying, it's, you know, they're trying to inform their own worldview and run them up against their thoughts. So, right. again, you know, there's that independent thought emerging. Yeah, a, a, a teenager who thinks independently and maybe rebels against whatever the... Uh, 
the the man is saying, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, it may be a little annoying when you are the man, but when they get out there in the real world, uh, they're going to maybe avoid uh, some of the more uh, the more harmful uh, elements in society. Yeah. So, so any of you uh, teen listeners, you could always melt the heart of your parents by saying, I'm just arguing with you because I respect your opinion. There Try you it go. out. Yeah. See if it works. So what is the future of debate based mm-hmm. on based on what we know here and, and the technology that continues to emerge around us? Uh, wh- where are we headed? Uh it's up for debate, I suppose. Uh, uh, I know. Yeah. Uh, well, there's this whole paradox of the Internet, right? Uh, everything is available to us at our fingertips, information all the time. Um, so many debates that you could engage in. But there are systems that continue to winnow down and serve up only what we like. All uh, right. And instantly Facebook comes to mind. Here. Facebook, yeah. Mm-hmm. They, their news feed has a feature that learns what you like and will show updates from only friends that you align your political interests with, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, stumble upon is another good example. It's trying to ferret out what you like and what you don't like. Right. These are situations where you, you're pressing, oh, I like that. I don't like that. I'm responding to this. I'm leaving a comment on that. And eventually it's learning. It's, it's via uh, algorithms. It's figuring out what you like and only serving that to you. Right. So if you were to just go into absolute autopilot and mm-hmm. allow all these systems to serve up all this information that it thinks you like, then, you know, you've really narrowed the scope of what you're exposed to. Yeah. And then, you know, what happens? Do our worldviews just kind of shrink down to these little slivers of the like the underlying ideologies behind the information that's yeah. served up? Well, it's like stumble upon. It's it's like it's serving you dinner and it's and it's saying, oh, well. He doesn't really like to eat spinach, so I'm going to quit serving it to him. He doesn't like LOL cats. Um, he's not getting any more of that. She's not really into Huffington Post. No more of that. Uh, to the point where, like, maybe, maybe you need a, a LOL cat every now and then. You know, right. Maybe, yeah. maybe you need to be exposed to uh, uh, any number of media outlets that you have turned your back on because you don't really appreciate what they have to offer. We need an LOL cat all the time, in my opinion. This is actually from uh, the book called Monoculture, How One Story is Changing Everything by F.S. Michaels. Um, he's kind of saying, like, you know, these these filters on the Internet could create a monoculture for us, right? And mm-hmm. not just the, the Internet, but different aspects of the life that we live. Um, he says a monoculture doesn't mean that everyone believes exactly the same thing or acts in exactly the same way, but that we end up sharing key beliefs and assumptions that direct our lives. Because a monoculture is mostly left unarticulated until it has been displaced years later, we learn its boundaries by trial and error. So if you grew up in the Dark Ages, you probably didn't know you were in the Dark Ages, right? Until, right. you know, the Renaissance arrived and all its glory and uh, ideas and, and, and made you completely have a, a paradigm shift. It does seem when I think back on the on my own use of the Internet, it seems like there was I used to argue more on the Internet. Now, possibly that could be in a situation where I just had more time and had like less of a life. Uh, in in the old days, so I could I could engage in long arguments about uh, about one topic or another. But it seems like uh, it does seem like things like Facebook and uh, and stumble upon have uh, it's 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 made an environment uh, where you are only tuning into the things that you agree with, and you're not encountering the people that you would argue with. Well, no, it's interesting you say that because I mean we live in Atlanta, and I've always joked that I have a five mile radius in Atlanta, and okay. it's you know it's my neighborhood, it's what I like, it's you know I chose to live there because it fits my ideas of what a neighborhood is and what it contains. Right, but there are so, whole sec- segments of Atlanta though that do not appeal to you. Uh, what- but there are some that do, but for the most part, because it's my neighborhood and I'm situated there, mm-hmm. I don't so much go out of this five mile radius. Okay. 
Except for when I come to work. Um, but the point is, is that are we creating our own little neighborhoods in our internet existence, which are providing us, uh, you know, fodder for thought and in essence creating these silos of thought. Right. Um, you know, because just as you had mentioned, uh, you know, you're not as argumentative on the internet as you used to be, but is this because you are, you know, being served up information that you like that's being selected for you to some extent? Yeah, I mean, it sort of allows us all to uh, crawl even more into our bubble and sort of and, and live inside this uh, this carefully crafted bubble of of beliefs. Well, uh, and then there's also this idea that we kind of have to put the blinders on sometimes because it is completely overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if you're trying to seek out every single argument or perspective on an issue, I mean, you you could become completely dumbfounded, really. Yeah. Or enlightened. All right. Well, uh, well, let's put that topic to bed and call out the robot. That is an argumentative robot, by the way. Yes, he's good enough to to shut it uh, when we're actually recording. But yeah, mm-hmm. wait till afterwards. Yep. All right. Here's one from Azra. Azra writes in and says, "Hi, I just started listening to your show a couple of months ago, and I wanted to say I really, really enjoy it." Uh, I just want to listen to your episode about our cohabitation with robot servants uh, when you mentioned Siri, and I want and I felt compelled to say something. I have a very small list, but it is still there and makes uh, life very difficult when trying to call uh, customer support. All these companies that are trying to get uh, you to use a computer instead of a human being make me very frustrated because the computers never understand me. I end up yelled at by uh, yelling at the thing and pressing random numbers in order to confuse it enough until it connects me with a human being. Now I'm not the biggest. Apple fanatic, but I have just started playing with Siri on the iPhone and am thoroughly impressed. It understands almost everything I say. This is my first positive experience uh, talking to a computer, and it might turn me around on the whole subject. Now, if they could get it to understand accent, that would be really great. Thank you for your time. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That just uh, cracked me up, too. I was just thinking about the times that I've uh, actually yelled at automated um, oh, yeah. voice recordings before and then felt foolish or was really sarcastic toward it. Yeah, I've also wondered, like, sometimes I'll be like, I'll be like, oh, I just want to tell this machine off. And I'm like, oh, but what if they have it programmed in to where if I start saying bad things to it, it's going to just instantly shut me down. Yeah, or, it's, or it starts saying to you, you know, this is in the future, I sense some sarcasm in your voice. Would you like <laughs> to continue the call? All right, here's another one. This is from Becky, and Becky writes in and says... I love stuff to blow your mind. I especially love listening to it while I'm studying or reading textbooks because it breaks up the monotony of taking notes uh, on dry textbook material. I especially love when something I've heard recently on this podcast comes up in a conversation or in one of my classes because then I can quote you guys and seem very uh, seem much more knowledgeable than I really am. Smiley, uh, smiley face. Uh, I am really behind on episodes because I'm a pretty new listener, but I just listened to your musical hallucinations episode and I wanted to write in because it's really uh, interesting to me as a psychology major in college. I don't think this counts as true musical hallucination, but I often find myself hearing music during the early morning hours before my alarm clock goes off. My alarm plays music to wake me up, and I often wake up totally convinced that that music is playing, but when I look at the clock, it isn't time to get up yet. 
Sometimes it's so convincing that I start to get up and only later recognize that I have woken up before I need to. Sometimes it's a specific song that I can identify or even hear the lyrics uh, uh, in the voice or the singer. And other times it is more generic music that doesn't seem like any specific song that I know uh, or have heard before. It can be quite annoying because after I wake up thinking I've heard the music, I usually can't go back to sleep. So that's my musical hallucination story. Thanks so much for making the podcast and making me aware of strange phenomena without ever needing to leave my dorm room. Oh, Becky, you know, I mean, seriously, it sounds like you need to be composing. I mean, this this is what happened to Paul McCartney, right? He woke up with yeah. the tune of yesterday in his head and immediately ran over to his piano and, and put it down. And he was afraid that he had actually ripped off the tune. Uh, so, I don't know. Look into it, Becky. You could be, uh, you could be composing. It, uh, it brings to mind, like... The, the, I have this gripe that is uh, growing uh, as far as the, the way our devices use music. Like, I end up using my iPhone to play music uh, a lot of times when I'm, like, in the house and all. And it'll do this thing where you're getting a call, right? You're listening to a mix or an album or something. You're getting a call, and then the music uh, will sort of dive down. There'll be this uh, this pause will suddenly develop. It'll uh, it'll go silent for a second, and then the call uh, will, uh, will register. You'll get your, mm-hmm. your ringtone or whatever. But it's gotten to the point where there's a naturally occurring... Uh, dip in the volume, say like a gap between tracks or just a, an abrupt stop uh, between, uh, between uh, tracks and a mix, it'll throw me off for a second. I think I'm getting a phone call. And it really uh, makes me mad at the technology because I'm like, this would this was not an issue before. Before the, the technology became involved in this, that would have just been a gap that wouldn't have registered in my brain as anything like, oh, you might be getting a call from your security company or, oh, um, you know, uh, my wife's trying to reach me, I, I, you know, or I wonder if that's my mom calling, that kind of thing. Uh, well, you need to blame your predictive modeling mind, which well, gets all excited, yeah. starts serving up a little dopamine to your brain because it thinks it's a call from your wife. Yeah. So there, there you go. It's, uh, <laughs> it, uh, I, I just, I just hate the technology that's done that to my music. It's kind of like when into like, your brain, into my brain. It's like when suddenly uh, uh, you'll hear a sound in a mix that sounds sort of like a ringtone, and it'll throw you off for a second. And you think you're getting a, a, a phone call. It, uh, it, yeah, technology. I know. Just saying. So uh, speaking of technology, if you would like to. Uh, share something with us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are Below the Mind on Twitter and on Facebook you can just search for Stuff Below Your Mind and you will find us. Uh, share uh, anything you would like uh, like to with us about uh, uh, current or past uh, or future podcast episodes. And uh, indeed, let us know what you think about arguing. Like, uh, how does... Uh, how did- how do, how, do you, how do you view your own arguments? Are you aware of your own ego and its role in your argumentative nature? Are you a master debater? Indeed. Indeed. All right. Then uh, send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Mm-hmm.